You're listening to Accounted For, the Canadian podcast that explores the intangibles of every career. I'm your host, Daniel Lee. Hello, hello. Welcome back to Accounted For. This is the podcast to inspire unconventional careers, and it's a part of OMD Ventures, my platform on a mission to create utopias. And if you'd like to ask questions regarding anything career-related, please reach out in the contact page so that I can have enough to amass an AMA episode. And if you maybe want, even want to have a deeper conversation with me, I'm looking for ways to do that more. Um, there's instructions at a contact page for that as well on the website at omdventures.com slash contact. And if, without anything else, please help subscribe support the overall platform and the podcast by rating it if you're on itunes or if you have any other rating optionality with your podcast i guess listening engine as well subscribe to the newsletter just to be in the loop of what's happening every week that's something exclusive that's only provided to people who subscribe to the newsletter so check that out and the newsletter also includes all the weekly updates on the essay the podcast and also my learnings that I also pump out every week as well. Okay, so today's conversation is with George Khalife. He is the head of marketing and business development at Owl.co and also the podcast host of Let's Grab a Coffee podcast. And he is also the co-founder of an app called Bookback. So having grown up in the Middle East from Lebanon to Bahrain and also Saudi Arabia, the merchant blood and a passion for building relationships was really rooted in George's upbringing. And seeing the world through his father's career in finance really brought him to be a finance major in university. And this is something we definitely do share in the podcast for sure because I also saw the world through my dad's eyes in finance as well. So we definitely do hit off on that aspect. But George definitely pursued it further in university where he also started the student investment club at the university of ottawa but instead of really pursuing the traditional investment banking careers or any like more finance oriented careers like his peers did coming from that major he went into sales and marketing pursuing a career in the realm of business development sales and marketing was just not a conventional option really discussed in university but from listening to colleagues and observing that what really gave him energy, George moved down this unconventional path where he saw an opportunity to merge his interest in finance as well as this newly growing interest that he seemed to have in technology as he saw the big wave of tech IPOs in Toronto from working in the TMX group. We go through his various transitions from working at the TMX group, which is the holding company that owns the Toronto Stock Exchange, to his time actually going into an investment bank, just not in the typical modeling investment banking analyst role, and also eventually to a startup at Owl.co. And we talk about what someone might actually do in business development in these kinds of different kinds of settings as well. And yeah, this was a really fun conversation where I felt like I was talking to a kindred spirit where someone was really passionate, who was also passionate in forming relationships and was passionate in just the art of conversation itself and so i do really hope that my conversation with george adds value to your own career journey and gives you some insight into the world of business development as well 
Hey everyone, welcome back to Accounted For. Today on the podcast, we have George Halife. Hey George, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me, man. What's going on? Good, good. We have this wonderful view in Toronto that I just really want to show my listeners, but unfortunately, my face doesn't really seem to be made for TV, more for audio, so I don't really do video like uh, George does with his podcast. But George here is also the head of marketing and business development at Owl.co, and he's also the co-founder at an app at an app company called um, Bookback. He's also the podcast host of Let's Grab Coffee, and he also has his own blog at georgehalife.com. So you're, you're a man who does so many things, and the big question for me right now is when you meet someone for the first time, and they ask you in typical Toronto fashion, so what do you do? How do you, how do you respond? Yeah, that's always a good question. Um, so let me just preface, it depends where I'm asked, right? Like if, mm, I'm, yeah, yeah. if I'm in an event uh, on behalf of OWL, it's a different kind of pitch. But generally what I would tell people is uh, I'm a guy with a finance background, the DNA of an entrepreneur, uh, and a passion for sales and marketing. And the sales and marketing sort of came later. My background academically was in finance because that's always what I've wanted to do. And I still have love for it. Um, I just figured out, you know, my roots coming from Lebanon. I'm a Middle Eastern guy, so a lot of people listening would understand. You know, we have that merchant DNA, so that entrepreneurial age was always there. Uh, I just sort of tackled it later in life, and so that's why I say DNA of an entrepreneur, background in finance, but passion for sales and marketing, and that's what I do always, whether it's for OWL, my side businesses, that's kind of how I think of myself. Okay, okay, nice. That's a that's a solid, well-rehearsed answer there. You, I can I've thought about it. Yeah, I can definitely tell that each word has been chosen very carefully. <laughs> 100%. And and so you said like you, your background is um, from Lebanon, Lebanese. Um, but I think from when I did research on you, like you grew up in Bahrain, correct? Yeah. Or? So uh, the, the story is interesting. Like I, I was born in Lebanon, um, but the situation there was kind of turbulent as it is now for people listening. They would understand there's like a huge uh, revolution happening. Um, but basically I was born there, went to Saudi for 10 years because my dad was working there. And then I came, we immigrated to... Um, to Ottawa, and we uh, so I did a bit of my schooling there. Went back to Lebanon for two years, and then two years after that in Bahrain at the same private school. So I graduated high school from Bahrain, uh, and then I came back to Canada for university. So oh wow, okay, I, I love it. We got a little bit of a global uh, globe trotter. I call yeah. it the immigrant roadshow. So it's like <laughs> we, well, we always do, man. All expats do this, and it's it's very common, but it's good. You do travel a lot. You meet new people, you know, yeah. different cultures, religions, ideologies. Like it's good at a young age and. You only appreciate this later, mm-hmm, later mm-hmm. in life. So it's, oh no, one hundred percent. Yeah, like I, I think when before we recorded, I was telling you like yeah, like Toronto's like my sixth city that I've, I've lived in, and I definitely do think each city, each country you live in, it gives you completely different perspectives each time, and travel helps with that for sure. But mm-hmm. like I'm, I'm honest, I haven't traveled to the Middle East yet, and so that's definitely on my list. That should be the next quarterly. We were just talking about that. Your, yeah, yeah, your yeah, quarterly adventures. This is the next one. Yeah, I, I may, maybe so. So I'm, I'm wondering like. Maybe for like myself mainly, and maybe for some of my listeners who are not as well versed as well. Like, can you paint a picture for me of like you know your time in Bahrain, Saudi Arabia? Like, how would you describe it? Yeah, it's. Uh, I think what what I might say may uh, may challenge some people, but mm. uh, I'm very neutral in, in in ways that I've experienced. So I'll tell you, for example, like in Saudi, I mean, I understand that obviously it's a very restrictive environment. I might not agree with a lot of their, their ideologies and so on, but I'm just talking from an experience of living there for about 10 years. I was a kid, though, so I was much smaller. People from the area would understand you actually live in compounds. So not like here where it's like a free roam, you know, you live in condos and units and homes. In Saudi, if you're an expat, you live in uh, gated communities, basically. Not that because it's, it's you know, unsafe or anything. It's just that 
you know, people from outside countries tend to live in uh, these gated communities where other similar or like-minded individuals live, right? Um, so it was actually not that difficult. I mean, I was, dude, I was a kid, lived in a nice compound. There was a pool, a tennis court. A lot of my friends were lebs and or came from other countries and it was cool. It wasn't that bad. Um, Bahrain was actually one of my favorite places to live. Like, it was almost like your dream place to to go to high school, to be honest with you. And it sounds weird, but the reason why, I went to a really nice private school, right? It was on an island, literally. Um, I lived right next to the, the, the high school, um, had a beach in front of the house. I played basketball all the time. It was a very difficult school. People who, who listen, it's uh, Sabbath, Shoifat. It's a very common school in the Middle East, so they might recognize it. That was good, though. It was um, it was a, f- a fun place to to grow up, man. I mean, you know, you you had a lot of expats. There wasn't a lot of locals, so you you met people from Australia, from England, from Canada, from the U.S. So it was like this weird melting pot, and it's a very tiny country, very tiny. And Bahrain in Arabic means two seas, right? It's a very tiny island next to Saudi, and it's actually where the Saudis would come to party because it's a bit more progressive in Bahrain. So. It was pretty cool, man. I mean, I actually had a good time. Always good weather. Uh, yeah, not many complaints there until, you know, the Arab Spring happened and um, things just got really messy. You know, my dad had to leave also. Um, all, you know, a lot, of, a lot of expats had to leave, unfortunately. A lot of companies downsized. So, um, the, so that's the positive side. The negative side of living in those kinds of regions is that these turbulent times always surface. And they force you to move. And although you like the good thing is like you adapt and you you're ready for change. But as you can imagine, it's challenging because you have to come back here and then figure shit out. And you have a family and you're spending your savings just trying to get settled back into the community. So having done this so many times, it's like it's a little bit like you get tired of it a little bit. Mm-hmm. And yeah, like I think when when you're describing Bahrain, like it it did paint this kind of cool picture. Because so I actually I don't really know about the kingdom of Bahrain um for like until recently because i recently got into watching formula one oh, and they, they have the race in bahrain and yeah. i was learning about how it's an island nation i was like oh yeah like it's, it sounds really cool it sounds magical it is um, it is it's a it's a cool place yeah, yeah it's, honestly yeah it's definitely been on the list of countries i definitely have to visit yeah and but for you then so you've had this very you know global upbringing like you're surrounded by people who are other expats you are constantly back and forth between um, canada and the middle east during that time i'm and I'm wondering how maybe like the culture or maybe the kind of upbringing you had, the family situation, like what, what, what kind of dream, like occupation or like career did you think about having when you were young, like when you were like seven or 10, like what, what was it, was it like that merchant blood always like fuming inside <laughs> thinking I will probably do international trade or something like that? Yeah, dude, it's a great question. And you appreciate this. You know, you, you tell me you come from uh, Korea. So it's like, but listen, for me, I was always this class clown. Which is, you know, if you ask all my, my close friends, actually, they'll tell you, you know, that I almost did like a 360. So when I was growing up, I always, I always, like comedy and, and acting and making people laugh, it's still a part of me today. And I actually leveraged that a lot in my job. But early days, I didn't really know, right? I was like most of the other kids. Like I didn't have really like a, a set idea of what I wanted to do yet. What I identified early in my life is I had this ability to really... Um, either bring people together or this ability to make friendships easily. I was like your typical social dude, you know, 100% extrovert, a little slightly introverted when I need to re- recharge the batteries. But I, I, I loved, like my energy came from people, to be honest with you. That's when I felt like the most alive. Um, and, and I think my parents realized this early too. 
the sales thing and, and you know, the, the, the business aspect came later, I would say. But I grew up in a household of, of bankers. So my dad is a, is a treasurer and he, he's like your typical nerd finance guy. But he loved it. He still to this day. He teaches it in Lebanon. And so he's super passionate about finance, about account. Like he just loved it. It's like, it's, and it's, it's, you know, it's funny to see because, you know, mostly you, you think accounting. You come from the accounting background. You might think it's like dull. Some people love it and some people hate it, right? My dad is the guy who really loves finance. Um, so I grew up in a banking environment and I obviously when you look at his library like you see all these finance books and I was like oh like this is so cool I'd see him get dressed in a suit and like he'd take me to work and I'm like wow man like this is this is insane I saw the Bloomberg terminal when I was like 15 and I was like this I don't know if, if it, you know if it gets better than this and like I can see him getting stressed and the adrenaline rushing so I, I figured early like that's what I wanted I was trying to emulate a little bit just because I loved that environment I thought that was so cool um, so in university, that's what I studied and I loved it and it taught me a lot, man. But I think growing up aside from that, just to give you one idea, the other aspect is selling was always in my blood. I always loved to sell. And what, what's funny, I wrote a post about this on LinkedIn for people listening who might have this question, like, you know, is what I'm doing now aligned with what I always wanted to do growing up? I found that even with me, like my passion actually followed me. I don't know if that has happened to you and maybe you'll resonate with this, but you know, when you're doing something, like when I was in the finance club, I'll give you an idea, right? I wanted to be an investment banker. I was putting on my suit. When we do pitches and the valuation, I was more passionate about the story, the marketing, the management team, how I'm going to pitch this to sort of get you to see what I'm seeing so that you invest your money. Mm. I did the valuation, whatever, but I was pretty average at it. It wasn't what I was like, you know, that, that kind of bell that would ring. For me, it was the marketing. How can I sell this story for you? And so I knew early on that marketing and sales was actually what I really, really wanted to do in the context of finance or entrepreneurship. This was my holy grail and I, and I fucking knew it early. It, there's always that effect where, you know, when, when you hear stories and sometimes when it, when it resonates and you kind of get chills in your body, like I was, I was kind of like feeling it as, uh, as you're telling the story. <laughs> it's good, man. Yeah, no, it's good. And yeah, like I, I definitely do. Uh, resonate with that where if it's a weird feeling where you like did you feel that way at all i'm just i'm kind of curious to see if yeah it's 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 for me it actually took time because i think i've learned i learned to block out my subconscious for such a long time that when i actually started listening to it um it it brought back or made me realize certain certain feelings. And I think for me, like my personality, I, I like to be very some somehow like analytical about mm-hmm. my actions and I like to have proof or facts behind my decisions. And so for me, when I actually started looking back on my journals that I constantly do and all the feedbacks that I collected, those were the facts. And those are facts proved by other people, my peers that dictated that it's true. Like I act a certain way and I sometimes don't realize that this is something I love doing. It's like when people say your strengths are not what you think you're good at. It's what everyone else thinks mm-hmm. you're good at, but it's just so obvious to you that you don't see it. And I think when I started looking at all these journals and all these feedbacks that I started seeing what everyone else was seeing, I'm like, Oh, okay. So this is actually what I'm really good at. And that's definitely been, I think, pivotal in me going down this very weird path and doing these projects and sitting across from someone like you and actually sharing our stories together. Yeah, it's cool, man. You get, this is what I mean by energy, right? Like even hearing you talk about your story, I get energy from it. And it's like small bits of inspiration. I feel like that's kind of what keeps you moving in life, you know. And if you're surrounded by people like yourself and Rav and Mark and all the people that you've mentioned previously or good friends of mine, 
you just learn from what they've done. And I think that's what's cool about what you're doing here. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. And so for you, like, yeah, like the, the influence of finance, like my, my father's a finance person too. And so that's where my, my uh, influence definitely came to where you grow up, you see suits, you see tall skyscrapers and you think, damn, this is sick. This, <laughs> this is what I want. My this dad's always it. traveling. We're traveling together. This, this, is, this must be it. So I got to wear a suit. And then, but as you grow older and you learn about the world and you start digging into the first principles of you know, jobs, the industry, you start seeing and thinking things change. Like when you're in school, you, I think you start the student investment fund, like the Telfer Capital Fund. And so for someone that does that, like when you're in school, like I find that a lot of people end up going, wanting to be an investor without the investment, investment route because sometimes from the outside looking in, it's, it's also seen as the prestigious thing to do. But for you, like what, was there like a particular like, inflection point that triggered to for you to like, not pursue the investing route, but go straight into the sales and marketing route where you joined the TMX group and like the rotational program. Like, what was it? Yeah, I think it, it was a collection of things, right? Like, well, so when I joined, uh, it, it was used to be called TNV Capital Management. Three of my friends put it together early days and kind of helped start it, right? It, um, I definitely had a love for finance. Don't get me wrong. And I still do, really. I love the valuation. I love the figuring out like the true price of a company and, and understanding the story behind it. Like it's so cool and it's, it's respect. I, f I figured though, what happened was I think when I joined TMX more importantly, and I was doing this rotation, um, one of my rotations was in business development for, it was on the product ma management side, but I was doing the BD for it. And a lot of people would come to me and be like, dude, you're like, you've been here for six months and you already know like most of the company, what the hell are you doing? Like, this is not, not very common. And I remember when I first joined, but I, the first thing, one of the first things I did was I printed, it was a PDF, but I, I basically printed it. It's a, of the org chart of TMX, the entire org chart from the CEO down to the last, or like all the way through. And I highlighted every single person I wanted to meet. It was pretty much the whole company, but like I, I knew priority wise who I'm going to start with and how I'm going to get to Lou, who is the CEO. And like, I wanted to meet everybody. That was my thinking immediately. And I, then I had a goal. I'm like, I'm going to do like at least two or three coffees every week with new people, not just within my division. I want to meet like, I want to, and this is the easiest way to do it. And people are like, oh, well, you know, they always tell me like, how do you network? And I'm like, man, you work, you work at TD. You have 80,000 people to meet globally or not just in, in Toronto at least. So, and, and I think as that started happening to your point, you know, when you were saying you didn't listen to your subconscious, I didn't listen to, to my voice either as much as I should have. So I knew it was innate in me the whole time. I just didn't, when people started coming to me and you're like, man, you're destined for like sales, like sales and marketing. You thought about that? And I'm like, well, kind of, but I don't know, like, what am I supposed to do? What, what, what areas am I supposed to like, even at TMX, what am I supposed to do with sales and marketing? You know, like, you'll see it's going to come to you. That was the first realization. The second one quickly was, if you think about the TSX, I always story told it as like the Super Bowl of entrepreneurship. This is, this is it. Either you exit or you take your company public. And for me, coming in when Shopify was going public, when all these blockchain and cannabis companies were going public, it was like, man, I, I don't know how to explain it to you, but it's like, you know, if you see like Angelina Jolie on the street, I would fangirl if I saw like, you know, the CEO of Shopify or Wealthsimple or, or you know, like some of the, the biggest companies and they're going public. Like I would fangirl if I saw an entrepreneur who I loved, you know, so for me, for some reason, I just got super inspired by these entrepreneurs, seeing that they were able to take a company that was an idea in their head, you know, taking it public, raising mil hundreds of millions of dollars, 
And just, it, it was such a cool thing to see early in my career. Not only see it, but meet them. Mm. Understand how they were doing it. Going out to all these events and conferences, sitting in the front row and listening to panels. That started to kickstart my, my love for entrepreneurship and understanding that there was actually a huge opportunity on the sales and marketing side, especially if you had good context in business. And so I'm like, what the hell have I been doing this whole time? That was, that was the real micro tipping point of my career. And how, like, how did the, how did that kind of happen? Like, can you take me a little maybe deeper into like, you know, you were doing the rotation, you were in sales, like, was it, you know, did you decide to kind of focus on like, uh, like an industry group? Like, how does it work in TMX when you're, when you're on the sales side? Cause you know, my background as an investor, like my relationship with TMX has just been, you guys have all the companies on the public exchange and I'm going to be looking at it. Yeah. But as for someone who's actually in the sales side, like how, what is it? Like, how does it work? Um, what do you actually do? Yeah, it's a good question. So um, in my rotation, so I was, I was part of the first cohort of business associate program. Mm -hmm. um, there was no like blueprint of how you were basically, and it, it was to our advantage, to be honest. I was lucky, I was lucky and, and disadvantaged in two ways. The lucky part was that because there wasn't a set plan, I was able to sort of create my own path. The challenging part was that because that was happening, you, you also had to evangelize the program in the company as it was happening. So you had to do a killer job every single rotation so that other business units were getting sold on this and accepting associates into their funnel because they have to budget for you. I mean, you're getting paid, right? So um, so what happened was, and I did four rotations in total, right? Four completely different. And I did this on purpose. For, so for people listening, wanting to do programs, my advice is do four completely different ones. Every one was different. I started on project product management and then I did BD with the clearinghouse, CDS, my third rotation was basically helping roll out Google, like the Google Office tool suite. We, we changed from Microsoft to Google, and I was in charge of change management. So really, like selling the vision of why we're moving to the whole company, like literally flying to the U.S., to Texas, to basically all our offices in Canada and selling why we should go to... And I had, I had no IT background, no change management background. But then again, this is where the ball is rolling. I know in myself, like, this is what I love to do. I'm like, I'm storytelling the vision. I'm talking about marketing Google within the company. You know, I'm getting backlash because people don't want to change, right? Like, you know, they change management curve. They don't want to go through this whole thing. And I left the sales rotation for my last one strategically because I knew that this is where I wanted to end up. The challenge was there wasn't any associate who's ever done sales at TMX yet within the program or otherwise. It was basically a team of VPs. So I really had to sell like, why I should do my last rotation. I was like, and I was talking to my manager, Rich, who heads up corp sales. And I'm like, Rich is like, you know, and, and he really took a shot on me, man, early. And I'm like, just give me this, this opportunity, dude. I won't disappoint you. It's six months. If you don't like me, kick me out even early. Just, this is my last rotation. This is the only place I want to be right now. Like, you need to give me this. And so uh, I did the, the, my last rotation there. I was the first associate to get into the sales side for TMX. And basically, well, I was, what I was doing was, finding private companies to, to list. That was my, my role. And obviously, there's more details to this. You have to be strategic. You have to you know, build relationship with investment bankers like what you on the other side. Uh, build relationship with lawyers, accountants, the whole nine yards. When I did the six months, I loved it. I stayed on for another year full-time. And then I was leading sales for Toronto and New York. So that's why it was so cool because I knew then and there, I'm like, I love entrepreneurship. I love the story of entrepreneurship. And my job was basically building relationships with these entrepreneurs 
who were destined to go public, whether it was now, in the, in the six months, a year, two, three, four years from now. And I thought that was cool because for me, man, and, you know, people listening might be like, oh, okay, well, I get the job. But for me, it was even bigger than that because, because I loved investing too. I knew that what I was trying to do is like build a future, I guess, for the TSX of these cool companies that would eventually list and then give the investor a chance to also have a stake in these companies. Whether it was through your TFSA, RRSB, it's giving you a chance to build your wealth in very cool companies that you and I know, especially on the tech side, which I'm very passionate about. It's it's it's, and we we talked about this um, a little before we uh, did the recording, but like you know when you're in TMX, you strategically put sales as the last rotation, and so you you already had this kind of con- somewhat of a conviction that you you know. You knew you'd like to do sales. You thrive there. This was going to be your passion, your strength area. But when you're actually in school and you talked about how when your friends like look at you, like you know, they tell you about how way back when when you guys were in school, like, that was the unorthodox thing to do for someone a finance grad to go into sales. Like, why wouldn't you pursue investment banking? Like everybody else is trying to do. What was that like when you know when you're in school? Was it very obvious to you that why why should I do investment banking? Why? I think I like sales. And was it a very easy thing where you just knew exactly from all these like activities, school clubs that you did, or was there a bit of a struggle of trying to listen to who you were compared to um, what what like society, quote-unquote, seems to expect of like top-tier finance grads? Yeah, I think for me what happened was in high school, I was this class clown, at least in the early years. Not, like when I was in Bahrain, I, this is where I started getting serious because my private school kicked my butt. But when I got to university, I, for some reason, I had this like chip on my shoulder. Hmm. Like I really wanted to prove to people that, you know, I could be serious, that I could be taken serious, and that I could become a professional. So I had this like VP stance like early in, in, in university, and I'm like, this is what, like, I'm going to show you what I can be. I had this like weird chip, right? And it was for no reason. Nobody was telling me anything, but I just wanted to prove people wrong. And I think that's where I... I I think I've, I focused a lot on being the best I can be in university. So I was like getting involved a lot, but I didn't have a, a path to sales or marketing. And I think because finance was taken more credibly, you know, and as a result of that, I was also taken more. I, I, the appearance of being, being more credible appealed to me, which was maybe not the right thing. Um, and it was filling my ego. And I get that. Obviously, as you mature, it's easier. But when you're there, it's not as clear to you. Um, so, so that was kind of, uh, uh, how do you say it? Like in my head, that's what was going on at the time. And there wasn't a clear path, dude. Like there wasn't a clear path to go to sales. And it's funny. And I, I look back and I'm like, why, why, why wasn't there? Why didn't you tell me that like, you know, I could work at Amazon or Salesforce or Google. And this is a, a, a huge community. It's a huge opportunity. And for someone whose strength is in this. You know, and, I'm, and it's not like I'm pointing fingers. I, I put the blame on myself, but I almost feel like I'm also responsible for helping students and upcoming professionals to know that this is a thing you can do. And I was, I, I was telling you this. I had a talk with my friend who was also from Ottawa U, and you know, we were talking and stuff. And he told me, dude, listen, one of the reasons why I pivoted into sales and marketing was because you did it early. But similar to you, I had the same connotation. I thought that if you go into sales, you're regarded this like sleazy car salesman, and I didn't want that. You know, the difference was, here's what I realized early in my career. I, when I was at TSX especially, I talked to some of the guys at like the financial risk management group where I could have done a, a rotation. 
I chose very strategically where to do my rotations based on what, what I was good at. Because I knew one thing. I'm like, listen, man, I'm not, I'm technically, there are people much smarter than me in many different areas, whether it's on the data side, it's on the technical side, the risk side. I can compete in those areas. I can, I have a very strong work ethic, but I'm also a reasonable, smart person in the sense that, listen, even if I, my hustle is 100%, if you're naturally apt at this and this is what you love and, and are passionate at, you're going to be me. Okay, so where, in which areas am I going to be the same as you, but where I can excel at? And I pinpointed those areas early in my career, and the pro program gave me enough time to, to figure this out. And so when I look back now, and I'm like, listen, dude, and I always regarded myself as a professional in sales. So I, you didn't see me in like, you're like, oh, look at this douchebag, or what an asshole. Like, I always carried myself very highly to very high standards, and like, I did that for a reason. And I was building my network, and anybody who knows me, man, knows how much effort I put into fostering my relationships. I take it very seriously, my reputation. And, uh, and so, yeah, this is just really to say that, like, I, I figured out eventually that this is a profession I can do. And if I think it's pro professional in myself and I hold myself to a certain regard, it can be deemed as, like, not only serious, but this is a huge opportunity for me. And I'm going to be an outlier in this industry because... I'm positioning myself where I'm, I'm strong and I'm only getting stronger on my strengths. I'm not dwelling on my weaknesses. And when you talked about the, the chip on the shoulder, I think there was like a story that you talked about in a previous interview somewhere where I remember just kind of resonated with you where I think it was like a fifth grade teacher told you that you weren't going to have a good career as like a communicator. But yeah. right now, like that's what you do. Like, and that's what you start excelling at. And like, sales is all about communicating, storytelling. What... What, was that like a very material driver in like creating this kind of shift or do you think it it was just like you're too young then and but it just needed time to just allow this kind of natural innate like talent to just blossom out yeah some, somewhat i mean she uh, i again i don't really know you know what what the intention was at the time but i really remember it distinctively and i don't yeah. remember much from from that period of time which is weird but i really remember this conversation um and it, it kind of stuck with me and i think i just let it to this i pushed it to the side but it you know man like if especially if you're if you're kind of bullied or challenged in certain ways when you're young it hits you and i feel like not enough kids are given this kind of inspiration luckily i had my parents right my mom is like you know the biggest advocate and uh and and, and not like gullibly right like i don't want people listening to say like oh if i screw up my mom's like good job not like not, not like this but she was always my supporter even when i doubted myself the most um and so i was very fortunate to have my mom my dad my sister to always push me um, eventually, and I, I think as they started seeing me, you know, taking myself seriously and really pushing on my career, they were always my, my drivers. So when you have someone like this telling you early on, and you hear it all the time, right? You hear successful people being told when they were young that they're dyslexic and they're never going to go anywhere. I, it didn't really phase me. But eventually, because people saw me as this class clown and like, you know, just making people laugh, I'm like, I'm going to show you. Like, there's more depth to me. I'm going to show you who I really am and just give me some time and I'll tell you what's going to happen. And I just put my head down and I just I executed. I worked my ass off, dude, really. Like, and I think that's the part that a lot of people don't know. You know, they see, they, everybody sees the product, right? And I, I know this is talked about a lot, like the process and whatever, but I think, um, I think people really misunderstand what that really means. Like for me, uh, hustle is, is at a different level. And it's not just always working hard in, in the sense that like I'm in the office till 1 a.m. just to show people I'm there and not doing shit. Like, I will out-hustle in any way I possibly can if, if I really wanted to. And if I'm doing something I'm passionate about, it's just going to happen. 
And that's what happened with communication. Through experience, through trying different things, I just got better at it. And I knew that this is what I was meant for. I just knew it. And to, to kind of shed light on that, the kind of hustle that fits your definition, what kind of, well, what's an example you can give, like something where you just completely just out, you know, blow out the competition? Yeah, I'll, I'll give you an example. So we were at a conference called Finnovate in New York. Um, and we were basically pitching to win. Like, uh, so I'll give just some context. It's a very big fintech conference. A lot of startups go about 80 are chosen to go there to to pitch in front of different enterprise banks, companies uh, from around the world. Okay, so you, you get six minutes, you demo, in re- like you actually show a real demo of your product. And then you have like a booth and you, you sit there for like a day and people ask you questions. And then eventually they pick a winner. The crowd picks a winner. It's not judges or anything. And they pick eight. They call it best of show, I believe, or nine. Okay, so there's about 80, 80 companies. Um, as soon as we got there, and this is, sorry, uh, you're part of OWL yeah, doing this. Yeah, because yeah. it's a recent example I'll give you. Mm-hmm. But uh, so it was me, Sean, the CEO, and Vahid, the COO. And um, we were working, like, we were in New York, dude, living, uh, we were staying in Jersey because, you know, hotels were crazy that for that week, particularly. And we're working late night on this pitch and figuring it out. And Sean, was gonna, uh, Sean and Vahid are going to present. So they're also, like, trying to get the demo right and make sure everything's good. And when you're showing a real demo, it's a bit stressful. When we were at the conference... Um, once they presented, we did two things that were like very different than what other people did. The first thing is we figured out that we that we wanted to have branded T-shirts, okay, to set us apart. Because when you're on stage, the camera's on you, you're magnified a little bit. But from what we saw from other presenters, there wasn't like a, a marketing edge, you know, like something to really stick and remember f- from that particular person. And we have a really cool colors. We have a nice logo. The name is cool. Basically, what we wanted to do was print T-shirts, a white T-shirt with caption on the front that says, who TF are your customers? That's our, our tagline is helping customers know their customers, sorry, helping financial institutions know their customers better. We wanted to make it funny. So we're, we basically wanted to say, who the fuck are your customers? This is at a fintech conference. Now, you would think printing T-shirts is easy in New York. It was the most difficult thing I could probably do. Dude. I couldn't find anybody to do it in real time because I needed it today. And I needed like four of these now, printed with our color, our logo on the back, etc. Nobody would do it. I literally went to like 12 shops. None of them did it. I was, I seriously was going to give up, just go back to the conference. And I'm like, George, listen, there's one on the way, one more. I go to this one person. She's like, listen, I don't think we can, uh, you know, it's a bit tough. I, dude, I was literally about to fake a cry. I'm like, listen, you don't understand. Like we're coming from Vancouver, Toronto. This is the most, this is a super important conference for us. I, I'm literally not leaving until you give me these t-shirts. I'm like, I just need three. Print who TF are your customers, put the owl on the back, and then we're friends. I'll leave you alone. But we're getting these t-shirts. I'm not, I can't. I'm not, this is, I mean, I visited like 20 shops. I can't do this anymore. I'm in fucking New York. I'm not in Madagascar asking for printing t-shirts. Anyways, we finally got it done, dude. We came back. They they presented. People loved the shirts. Uh, and this was actually Sean and Vahid's idea as well, so not taking credit on this alone. The final thing is when people presented, they went back to their booth. People just stood there, literally. Or they left their booth not doing anything. We were hustling. It was like a triangulation. So Vahid at some point was like doing some work as well, but he was on the booth with me. I was trying to talk to a lot of people and creating that inbound. As soon as I would talk to them, get their you know credit card, not their, their business card, sorry, get their business card and like ask them to vote. So I'm like, listen, like I know you just saw us. If you haven't already... 
you know, we presented seven at whatever, 11 a.m. Um, so if you can, you know, right after this conversation, we'd love if you can vote. What I also did was take pictures of Vahid and Sean present, put that on a running slideshow on our TV at our booth. So people who missed our presentation would, would know that, you know, we presented. And so it was just that constant hustle. And we were like, so desperate, like, I'm like, we need to win. There's no other way, man. And Sean and Vahid felt the same way. And we got called out of the, out of the 80. So, and I, I just realized then and there, like, this is the small things that sometimes you don't want to do, you know, but this is the scrappiness that's going to set you apart from other people. And I saw it. I saw other, you know, competing uh, companies who could have great products, maybe even better than ours in different verticals or whatever they're selling to, um, but just maybe didn't put in that extra effort. Yeah. And as you were telling me this, this amazing story, I, I was actually picturing you just running between like catching an Uber maybe catching a cab, oh running between st- streets of the the grids of New York. And maybe it's, I don't know if it's like during the summer where like it's blazing, scorching it hot. So hot oh yeah. I can, I'm just like, imagine like, Oh God, that must've been awful. awful. And, and for people who don't know, like this is again, you, you think it's glamorous, like we're in New York, but I'm literally, it was 30 degrees, man. I don't know why that week it was so fucking hot and I'm wearing a blazer. I'm sweating. I had to change like four shirts in a day, you know, and I'm, and you know how it is like finding a building in New York is, near impossible so uh but but this is the length you're going to go to and i literally got it done and people sitting back are like well when, when you think of like head of marketing and bd but at this stage we're almost like we're 20 people this is the stuff you're going to have to do to grow the team and the business you have to roll the sleeves even sean our ceo was helping doing this at the time you know so he was talking to people he was getting them to vote he was pushing for it just as much as i was and just as much as vahid was so you see this kind of hustle, man, and this, this is what it's all about. This is entrepreneurship. It's not being on a, on a jet. Like, this is maybe the positive consequence of it. But if you're not going to do this early, you're not going to get to where you want to be. And to actually get to this point, like you were, you know, you were at TMX, you were the first associate in sales, you're flying high, you're doing, you're doing all this like cool, you know, cool shit, like getting companies listed, making dreams come true. And then you transition to Stanford Advisors, where it's a mid-level tech M&A investment bank where you're kind of now on the other side now of, you know, your TMX clients. And then you went to Owl, a startup. Can you walk me through like the transition? Like, was it, was it, it just looks so nicely premeditated, you know, like where it's like you're at the big shops, then you go to the other side, get that kind of experience. And then now you're going to like the startup to actually go into the TMX as a client, right? Like, yeah. but life just never really is that linear. So I'm just curious, like, can you walk me through what, what was it like in like each decision point, like when you made the transition? Yeah, it's uh, you know, it's it's a good it's a good question, man. Uh, I think very long and hard about my story always. You know, I almost think of it as like a book, mm-hmm. and it's cheesy to say, but this is actually how I think about my life. I think about it like in chapters. Mm-hmm. Does it add up? Does it make sense? Am I happy with it? These are the three things I always ask. Does it make sense? Okay, well, I was there. For, I was at TMX for three years. They really kickstarted my fire for for the love of entrepreneurship. But after being there for three years, I realized that I needed, I needed a bit more perspective on things. For me to grow, I might, you know, the relationship is super strong, right? And it's always going to be open and who knows what happens eventually. But my thinking then was, I, I would like, like, I, I got my, I felt like fulfilled. You know what I mean? Like you get to this point, I felt fulfilled. Um, I gave a lot of value to TMX. They gave, certainly gave a lot of value to me and a lot of challenge and responsibility and confidence in me at an early age. That was huge. They vetted me almost. They're like, listen, like we believe in you. And so it was, it was great from that perspective. I just figured like it was time for me to, to do a shift, 
you know, to work in a different context, to see different things that I was curious about, much like what you were telling me. And I, th I figured, and at the time, I, pro I was actually proactively approached by the CEO of Sanford Ed, who's a good friend of mine. Um, and he was basically like, hey, listen, I have a great BD role. We're, we're trying to grow our Toronto office. They have a great presence in Ottawa and growing in Canada. And uh, they were dealing with tech firms, except this time it was on the M&A side. My mind, I'm like, listen, I saw companies go public. I would love to see what it's like on the M&A side when they exit, because those are the two possibilities. Or you just continue growing and you stay private. I'm like, what better way is that? Here's the other cliffhanger. I don't have a CFA. I didn't have one then. I don't have one now. And it was kind of ironic when people told me that I would never get into IB without a CFA. Well, what's up? You know, it was like, it was a bit of that. It wasn't, I didn't do it because of that. But I, I was always interested. I just figured like, I don't know if I could get into IB if I didn't have a CFA. I also didn't want to get into IB and be on the sort of back office side, you know, do the modeling and all the, the pitch decks. It didn't interest me as much. I wanted to be out there talking to companies and, you know, telling them about the M&A process and why they should hire us as a firm and so, et cetera. This connects to everything we talked about previously. What happens when you position yourself on your strengths and you continuously improve, eventually you create your own path. Meaning that I can go into IB and be in BD, still be in an investment banking environment, doing what I love, but doing what I'm good at, more importantly, and not being stuck in a role that I don't enjoy. And that was the cool part about being at Sanford. And I think, you know, being there for um, for a year and about maybe it's two, three months, um, you know, Sean, who's the CEO of Al, reached out and he's like, dude, listen, great marketing BD role. We're growing. TSX is actually a client of ours now. Uh, we're growing a lot. We, uh, we closed the seed round of 2.6 million. I have this great marketing and BD role that I think you'd, be, you'd fit very well in. What do you think? And, and this goes to show again, and I think just, I, want, I wanted to, to make this point, especially a lot of people don't understand why um, I'm active on social, okay? And I think this paints a very credible picture, especially from even for my dad, for my parents to understand it. They understood it much more now. The more you're on people's radar, the more you're of value to people and the bigger your network is, this is how your career evolves. Instead of you applying you know, digitally or handing your resumes around and doing this, you get pro proactively approached for roles that people know that you would do very well in. Because now you're an asset. Your currency is definitely visible. Mark Cuban says this, and I think a few others, is like, if, if you're good at something but people don't know about it, how, how are you ever gonna get noticed? You know, and, and you have channels now that make it so easy. So I think as I've learned from Sanford and from Al, what happened was when I, when I get proactively approached, it's because I'm always on people's radar. And if I'm always on your ra radar, Daniel, and, and you need like a podcast uh, co-host, okay, I'm always on your radar. You see my podcast, it aligns very well. You think of that role. Are you going to put a job posting on Medium or, or sorry, on like Indeed? No. Who are you going to go to? Your network. Okay. So you say who has a podcast? Who do you think is going to pop up? Right. But, yeah. but this is what people don't think about. LinkedIn isn't just about, you know, copy pasting articles that you see on fucking HBR or like Bloomberg, you know, put out your own uh, thought leadership. And eventually these kind of opportunities are going to come. I'm nothing special from that perspective. I'm just understanding how to play the game right. No, that's there's, there's so much there that I'm going to dig into. And I'll just kind of start, I guess, backwards. You do have a huge network on LinkedIn. I think when I first saw your profile, you have like 13,000 connections or something. And, you know, people can say what they want. It could be like a vanity metric, whatever. But each connection that you have, it can still be a relationship. I don't mm -hmm. know. And I'm just curious, like, 
how did you go about building those connections? Like, was it a methodical thing where you, you know, set out that I'm going to meet someone new every day, like I, someone new every day and try to build a relationship that way? Or did it just kind of organically just steamroll into something? Yeah, I think early on I was I was trying to build a, for, for me early in my career, qu- quantity was more important than quality. I'm going to be honest about that. Um, and I never really cared about the number of followers. I mean, 13, it really isn't like, people can say it's a vanity metric. Dude, in the context of other people I know, it's really nothing. Um, it's nothing in the sense of the, the number itself. To me, 10,000 of those 13,000 are could be people I'm really good friends with or connected to. That's what I'm really concerned about now. Let me just backtrack. When I was early in my career, as I told you before, I was going to these events and trying to connect to a lot of people because my early mentor um, to, really instilled this in me early in my career, who was Jean de Gagne, and I always preface him, but... He was also an executive at TSX, and you know he was a former alum from Ottawa U. So he would always tell me, George, listen, build a network, build a network. Like you need to focus on this dude. You need to put uh, effort not just in building a network, but building relationships. And the one key thing he told me is, don't just build relationships with people in your industry. Build relationships with people outside of your industry. Broaden your scope. Learn from different people. Make sure you do this now. It's kind of like investing. The earlier you start, the better it is. And I just, for man, I, I took it so seriously. I'm like, I need to do this. So for me, like building a relationship was almost as, imp- it was important as anything else, really. Like I saw it as like, uh, I don't know, like like something uh, really is like, I, was almost, I almost saw it as like building my wealth, r- really. I felt like the more people I was really connected to, not the people I, on LinkedIn, like, okay, I have 15,000 now, 10,000, no, no, no. If like you and I now are, I feel like we're connected we're friends, we'll stay in touch. I really feel like my, my, my net worth is growing almost, you know, and not in a dollar figure. I just feel like uh, it's almost like a, a currency, you know, and I, I think that's, that's super important. I think later in my career, I started being much more focused on certain things. So the events that I would go to, for example, and I was, you know, your keener in the front row and learning from panels. Now I'm getting to a point because I was privileged to do this early in my career and a lot of it, that enthusiasm, it's still there, but much more refined. I'm much more focused on the industry that I'm playing in. If you're on the BD and the marketing side, you need to get to a point where, again, you're maturing in your profession and you need to execute and show results. And you can't just do that being everywhere all the time with every everybody. You need to be super refined with in a business sense. I'm not talking like social with your friends. I'm talking like in a business sense here. Um, that you need to be focused. So if I'm, a, you know, if I'm in fintech or in tech as an example, I'm going to the industry-specific events. I'm talking to, to my to prospects or targeted individuals who I know could become clients. And I'm building those relationships. If I don't do this, I'm not a professional in business development. I'm a professional in, in shaking hands and, and hugging it out, you know? And that's good in the early in, in your career when not a lot of people know you. But as people know you and the light is on you, there is an expectation for you to execute on what you say you're going to do. And that's the point where I've reached you know, in the last couple of years. And I really want to continue to prove that. Mm-hmm. And it, it seems like, I guess like it, it all works out that way where, you know, when I looked at your podcast, The Scrap Coffee, you know, the name just kind of sings out where that's how you start building relationships with people. And I think you started it three and a half years ago when you were actually in TMX. So mm-hmm. it seems like that was kind of part of the project of building the relationship, building networks. And you've done other side hustles like you have your app book back where you're helping students trade sell and buy books and that started like two and a half years ago well i think you were in sanford at the time when you started it uh 
it was April 2017, like yeah. basically to the end of TMX. Early. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, you, and you're still doing both and you still have your blog and you're now at a startup where things are even crazier than ever. How do you, how do you prioritize what's important? Mm-hmm. Like, and I'm sure you also have, you continuously probably have more ideas of things you probably want to execute on too. Like, how do you prioritize? Yeah. Uh, so to answer the first question, but man, prioritizing for me that I found works best is doing things that have synergy with each other. And I say this all the time. And what I mean by that is if you think of, my podcast as an example. Well, it's easy for me to do because, and not that it's not challenging, but it's easy to fit in what I do because of my, of the network that I've built, of my ability to do well on a microphone or in front of a video, uh, of my ability to communicate naturally. Like this is not scripted, as you would know. So it's not like I've memorized every answer that you're going to ask me. I, I didn't even know what, what we're going to talk about today until I just asked you right now. Um, and so it's a bit easier for me because it's natural and I've done it for so long now. And I continuously do it. So the podcast is, is one example. My blog, I love to write. You know, so when I find time, like if I'm in a coffee place and I feel a bit inspired and there's a topic I want to talk about, I write it. Simple. Book back. You know, I was very involved in university. A big chunk of my network are students. I love books. And I wanted to develop an app so I can go through the process of developing an app and, and learn from it. Mm-hmm. So I took that more as a... As a passion project as well which ended up doing pretty good you know and we've kind of amassed users in like 80 cities which is interesting right so was it challenging fuck yeah it was challenging i was doing this on friday nights and you know kudos to, to my co-founders Ali and uh, Hikmat Tajatuni, who who built you know the product the technology behind it but everything i've done had synergy. there's a reason behind everything i did there was synergy in the sense that i can pull in resources and things that i was good at or maybe uh, my network my my expertise or people I know who can cover the gaps that I had to execute on what I wanted to do. Um, so it was actually easy in, in the full scheme of things. In terms of, you were asking, like, how do you s- stick with it? I think it's more on consistency because I'm also the, the, the type that I get excited very quickly. You know, so I get all these ideas and I get excited and I want to do everything. I also got to a point where I really had to manage that because I had to be careful. You know, one day I wanted to be, I wanted to do this, I wanted to be this, I, and I'm like, George, listen, I, 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 I basically looked at myself and I'm like, you don't have a lot of values. I talked about having values and I thought I did. But when I really, really reflected, I'm like, the reason why this is coming to you and you're having difficulty being consistent in what you're doing is because you don't have values. Like really, really set values. How many people right now, if I go on Dundas, you and I, and we ask 10 people, what are your values? In life, in business, in your profession, what are your values? What do you prioritize? What do you care about? The things that you want to do. Why? What's the purpose behind it? What are you trying to get to? Okay, you're building, but what's what's in the next two, three years? And if I don't have answers to these things, then I'm not going to do it. And so why values is important is because if this idea comes to my mind, my mind is going back to those values and saying, does it align with what I wrote down? Because this is what I care about now. It might change, but if it doesn't align, I'm scrapping it and I'm sticking on the stuff that I care about. And in, in, in light of that, then now you have this kind of you know, North Star. Like people call it so many different things, like Simon Sinek has find your why, like your purpose, so yeah. many different ways. And I definitely agree with like, that it is this kind of anchor that can also help guide you. It's like a lighthouse in some aspects as well, where it does help you prioritize. And in when I read like your articles, as well as like you know your other interviews, like you, a constant theme that comes out is like this, um, the advice you get from other people, the learnings you have is to just start action 
actually starting on things and something that i've actually had sometimes difficulty with is although it seems like such a simple like thing to do to just start sometimes i find like the simplest things are sometimes hardest to execute on and i'm wondering for you like were there times where just starting was actually difficult what why do you feel it's it's difficult yeah i think that i see that it changes sometimes but i would say in the recency's effect it's rather more a lot of times it's fear like there's fear of things not working out there's fear of is this the right thing and is this the right place to invest your time even if it does seem it might align with my why my motivation there's still all this uncertainty and there is that sense of panic and anxiety at times and i found that for me though i'm the kind of person that also likes to get as much information as i can as i can sometimes a little too much and with that certainty i'll execute but yeah that's something i'm curious to hear from your perspective as well in terms of how you just start like there are times when i'll just you know snap a finger start a whole new project instantly but sometimes some projects i ruminate over it for about like a year and then i'll execute on it and so far the ones i've actually thought about over about a year's time are the ones that i've been able to consistently push through for a much longer period yeah that's fair man and i wanted to ask just to kind of figure out a bit mm-hmm. more context from you but like a fear of of why you're going to do something is always going to be there i certainly have it i still do in certain respects but i've ha- been able to manage it much better and i've i've become much better at not caring about what everybody thinks i used to be a people pleaser you know and it was kind of it was tough because it was linked to my profession you know when you're client first and and customer centric and all these things this is what you what you become but the downfall of that if you don't manage it is you care a lot about what people think about you and your your reputation as a result is important the 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 things i personally do to manage that so one of the things for example if i'm trying to start something is i sort of drum up this enthusiasm this energy i try to refine it by obviously being level headed and thinking about it a bit of, in a sort of planned way as you pointed out sometimes it could take a year by the way like planning bookback took a, b- a couple months before we actually set out when i was building bookback i also didn't market it as much until the time where it was getting close to launching and i wanted to document a bit about the process but i didn't like blast it out and i'm an entrepreneur i'm a ceo right now like none of that bullshit you know and people knew that frankly and you can see my stories i'm not like bullshitting here um the podcast as, an, as another example i wanted to do it i literally started it i was laying down on my bed actually and i just googled how to start one and at the time i'm like okay i'm gonna, i think i'll create like a wordpress site never done one in my life it looked like shit but um just created a, a site you know and i'm like all right i'm going to call it scrap coffee because those are all my emails and i i think i know a couple of people who would kind of do this with me in the beginning who would give me a chance to to launch a first or two episodes and we'll we'll see what happens what well, what's going to happen now that's this easy way the real truth to this is also that i was very insecure in the beginning i was a little bit scared and guess what i was an associate at the tsx nobody launches a podcast when you're working in capital markets at least not in 2015 as far as i saw you know and my fear was what are people going to think what is my manager going to think about this are they going to like it are they going to ask me not to do it i don't know and then i was like fuck all that why i'm not doing anything bad I'm putting out value to the community i'm sharing someone's story i'm not swear i'm like I'm not like you know doing anything bad not not swearing but like not um you know what i mean like i'm not yeah, cussing yeah, anybody yeah. out or doing anything inappropriate in that sense i'm just having a, a frank conversation what was funny is 
um, and, and here's what I, my advice to people in, in two ways is one, as you start and as you actually execute, I guarantee you, I will sign any stamp you want me to right now that if you execute and you really see it through, really, really see it through and you you actually show passion in this, eventually this, this thing that you do is going to creep up into everything else you do. So for Sanford, for example, we were working on a podcast that they just recently launched after I had left, but they launched it. Um, with Owl, they're actually, one of the reasons they wanted me to join as well, like a very minor area was on the marketing side, we can launch a podcast together and it would be around fintech and all this cool stuff. So what's funny is like these minor side hustles that were really passion projects ended up actually creeping into my line of work and stuff I get paid for, which is hilarious. You know, I never thought I would, but, um, and I never did it for that reason, to be honest with you. I just became good at it and it's something I do and I like, and it's a good space right now to have. So it becomes like an asset almost. You know what I mean? Like who the hell would ever think that podcasting would be on your resume? <laughs> you know, and here we are. So I think that's one. The other thing is, listen, man, like as crazy as it sounds, sometimes I just remind myself like I'm going to die. Who, who really cares? You know, what? you're going to make fun of me because I did a podcast. You can laugh, dude. I'm, I don't give a fuck. Like, you know, I'm a growing adult. You think you're because you're laughing at my podcast? Go ahead. Like, I don't I don't really have the time to think about that stuff anymore. I really don't. It used to concern me a lot. Like, what are you going to say? And what? how does this look? I just really don't care. I don't care because, to be honest with you, I also don't think that you care about me as much. You know, frankly, you're going to talk for, what, a day? And then you're going to forget because you have to worry about your dinner. So who really cares? And just give me some time and I'll show you that I'm serious about this. And eventually you're going to ask to come on my podcast. <laughs> so it's a win-win. No, I love that. It's And I, I totally agree. It's, like, it's the very stoic, like, you know, Marcus Aurelius way of looking at it. And... Yeah, it's it's something I have to remind myself to constantly do, and yeah, I think it's a, like you said, it's a constant journey of battling it out and winning inch by inch. And I'll be remiss if I didn't dig into a little deeper into now what you know you do in BD because right now we've talked about a lot of the cool stuff, a lot of the good stuff where yeah. you know it's highlighting your passion, your interest, and yeah, a lot of BD I think is building relationships and doing a lot of the fun stuff. My my first job in university was in business development at a media startup in Vancouver. Oh, cool. And I had, you know, I tell people, oh, I was in business development. Cool title. It was my first job. Didn't know what to expect. I went in. <laughs> I practically did 100 cold calls oh, yeah. every day. And I was like, this is BD. All right. <laughs> and then, um, you know, but there's so many different aspects. Like I learned later on that when you're in a big four accounting firm, everyone's a trying to be partner. They want to be partner. And then I tell them, do you really know what a partner does? <laughs> like I, I sat down with a partner and I grew them. So what do you do? Tell me your schedule from t- you know, morning to night. What do you do every week? And I realized, oh, okay. So this is practically like business development. Like yeah. that's what you do. Like you stop doing all the accounting work. That's what we, the grunts do. But when you go to the highest level, that's what you do. Exactly. Investment banking. What does a management director do? Like, or managing director do? Like they're trying to sell their services to other companies. Like, but for you, Going from you know doing BD and sales in TMX to Sanford to Owl, like I guess like it's a two-part question. The first part being, how would you describe like the role of business development? Like whether you can, you know, describe it as a function of time allocation or yeah. the tasks that you do. And the second part being, how has that evolved throughout these transition points? Yeah, that's there's a lot to unpack there. Um... In terms of what BD is for people who might not know, or maybe who do or are trying to give it a shot, whatever the case is. And the way I understand it is, uh, and from my own experience, this is not a book by definition, by the way. Yeah. 
you, you look at two roles or maybe three roles now, okay? You look at sales, you look at marketing, and you look at biz dev. There's, there's someone overlapping in, in three ways. BD and marketing, in my opinion, and that's why my titles have always been together, BD and marketing, is because I actually think that they go hand in hand. Sales is more about, in, in the context of even the way we look at it at OWL, is more about closing the deal. So my colleague, who's more so head of growth uh, um, at OWL, really focuses on the, the big priority uh, prospects that we're kind of, we're, we have an MNDA signed, we've sent a proposal, things are coming to, to a close, and you know, he comes more from the, um, the sort of compliance, the, like that industry vertical that's really relevant to the client. So we, his sort of objective is to try to close those priority clients and, and also help on the BD side build the funnel. On the biz dev side, what you really want to focus on is inbound. Okay, so how are you generating leads? That's Leads is the term of like targeted individuals or companies that you're looking to build a relationship with so that they someday will become a client of yours. When you do that, what a funnel is really talking about is the pipeline. So as a business development person or even as a salesperson, your pipeline is everything. When you look at a pipeline, you segment it in different ways. So uh, Daniel, I just met you, okay? You, you have a company that could become a client of ours. You would be a targeted indi individual. We just had a relationship. We had a conversation now, it's been an hour. Now we're, it's engaged, it's an engaged uh, relationship. Down the road, you say, listen, like I th actually think we can work together. I'm not sure when, that's a warm lead. Six months later, George, I'm ready to go. You're a hot lead. The reason why you want to look at these different categories is because in every single funnel, in every single category, your approach to business development, marketing, and sales is very different. When you're a targeted individual in the case, I might put you on a newsletter just so that you're, you're on my radar. See how marketing now is involved in business development. I'm trying to close you. I'm trying to develop the business, but I'm, I'm using marketing as leverage to build my relationship with you, to get you to the next funnel. When we're engaged now and we have a conversation, my job on the business development side is figure out how, okay, so you're engaged, we had a conversation. What, what do I have to do to get to the warm lead? And it's not about pushing anything. It's not, I'm genuine about building the relationship. And listen, if there's no pain point, the best BD people, the best salespeople are extremely ridiculously honest with themselves. And I'm becoming better at this. No bullshit. Like, Listen, if you don't have a pain point or an urgency right now for what I'm trying to provide, and if I can't be a value, it's not the right time, dude. No worries. Like, you're in my network. I'm in yours. Maybe I can help. We'll see. Even in that case, I'm trying to give you value outside of my direct company. Because who knows, dude? You're always an advocate. I always see every single person I talk to as an advocate of my company. Always. Even if you'll, if you'll never be a customer of my direct company, you're an advocate. Why? If I treat you really well, genuinely, because I, I just care about my network, Eventually, what's going to happen? You meet another company who could be a perfect client of ours. And they say, hey, listen, Daniel, we're looking for this solution. Who are you going to recommend? The person who's an asshole or the person who's been of value this whole time? So there's a lot of strate you know, strategic thinking behind BD that I think a lot of people don't realize. Mm -hmm. And this is the hustle. Like you, you have to think about this. It's almost like a puzzle. And you're trying to figure out how to put the pieces together. And then marketing especially at a startup, it's not just about, you know, opening an Instagram account and looking cute, you know, and uh, posting selfies it's, or going to conferences. It's being strategic. We're going to Finnovate. What's our strategy behind it? How many leads are we going to talk to? How many meetings have we set up? From those meetings, how many of them ha have we, you know, booked a demo so we can show people our solution? 
from the marketing aspect, are we on LinkedIn and like, you know, showing pictures of our co-founders on stage? Great. Who's it targeting? You know, and then even the t-shirts, that was a marketing strategy to help our team basically win at Finnovate. You see, so you have to be very strategic, but marketing is basically, in my opinion, it's, it's storytelling the business. So it's, it's not basically selling, um, it's not selling the product or service. It's more so storytelling the, the value, right? It's storytelling um, how you could be of value to the pain point that someone has, right? And I think that when you, when, when you have alignment, that means that the, from the marketing aspect, you got people to understand that. And so you're kind of creating enthousi- enthusiasm around what you have, not so much um, you know, pushing people to buy just for, for no reason. So that's BD, that's marketing uh, in a nutshell. And then sales is more, obviously, also metric-driven, but much more hardened on sales. The objective is sales, whereas business development, you're trying to think about that funnel, think about how to even get people to the targeted section. How do you, from your network, how can you segment it, refine it, and then build the funnel, build the pipeline, think about two to three years from now. You know, Because those relationships you meet today might be relevant two years from now. So BD is a bit of a long game as well. And then marketing just helps, you know, helps get the story out, build the brand as you're doing all this and, and really communicating your, your value to, to the community. Mm-hmm. And how, how have you found that um, changing or evolving throughout um, the career so far? Yeah, that's a great question, dude. Um, I'll tell you why, because like at TSX, it's, it's the same thing in a nutshell, just a different game. I always said this, like for me, you know, switching from these three companies, like it was same, same hustle, different game. I always say that. Uh, TMX... The difference is it's a very long sales cycle, very long. So was with Sanford as well. You're looking at six to eight months on average, meaning that if you're a company and I work at the TSX, we build a relationship. I can't force you to go public. That's mm-hmm. actually not a good thing. I'm supposed to be almost like an advisor to you. I'm supposed to help you go through it. You might not be ready today. And in most cases, companies that we, we build a relationship with, they're not. They're ready a year from now, two years, three years, whatever the case is. My job, why I'm... I'm of use to you is to build that value, to, to educate you through the process of going public, maybe connect you to the right you know bankers, the right relationships, um, figure out what we have to do today to get you ready for a year from now, because there's a lot of work to do, and I'm going to help you through it. That's my, that's my real value. Um, and so when it comes to that stage of me finding you, obviously, and we're building a relationship, it was the same with Samford, and, and I think so you have to have, if you're in the services selling space, you have to have a long game or long view long lens it can't be very short term it's not like starbucks where it's volume driven you know like i'm selling you espressos and my sales is how many coffees i sold you today that's a, sh- a short-term sales cycle different business retail is a different business with owl it's much the same we're selling to banks and insurers they also go slow guess why we're a startup they have to make sure that we're vetted they have to trust our product trust that we meet all the privacy and compliance mandates and etc so we have our own challenges to go through at owl as we build the brand, build the business, build our clientele. Um, yeah, so you have to get comfortable. But more importantly, you have to know what type of seller are you. Are you short-term? Are you long-term? Are you a Because even like if you work at a tech company and you're selling SaaS, software as a service, it's very different. Some SaaS solutions are more medium-term. Some are short-term, actually. Like if you work at SAP or IBM. Last thing I'll tell you is the one thing I've learned from the three. You could be a very good seller working for IBM, but you could be a very shit seller working for, you know, elephant.co or .io. 
I hope that's not a real company, but I'm just, I just made up a name. Um, meaning that if you have a very strong brand behind you, it's easy. Hey, Daniel, what's up, man? Name's George Khalife. Uh, I'm the head of cloud here at IBM. Just wanted to have a chat. Okay, cool. What's going on? Hey, Daniel, what's going on, man? Uh, this is George from uh, brickmortar.co. Do you have a second? Ah, shit. Sorry, dude. I'm, I'm really busy right now. I'm tied up with something. Uh, what, what was that, mom? All right. Hey, man, I got to call you back. All right, bye-bye. You know, you don't have the same reputation on the street. You don't have the same credibility. And so the way you, the, your approach when you have a big brand behind you is very different than when you're working for a smaller company or a startup. Some people have the skin for it. Some don't. Some figure it out. Some don't. No, that's a very eloquent way of putting it. And I, I think my audience would definitely appreciate that overview as well. Like I'm definitely appreciating it. Yeah, I hope so. And hope it's value, man. No, definitely. Unfortunately, though, we are kind of hitting the ends of our, our time together as this has been a, honestly, like the time flew by. I had so many questions I, know, <laughs> I wanted to ask you, it's good, um, but it's good. You know, it'll, it'll lead away for more conversations to come. And so as, as we kind of wrap up this interview, though, a, something I want to ask you is what, what's an uncon, unconventional or what's a belief you have that you think um, goes against conventional wisdom? It's mm. a good question. Belief that goes uh, against conventional wisdom. Mm-hmm. You're saying. I, there's, there's too many. I think this is my <laughs> problem. My life oh. has been on unconventional from yeah. the beginning. Or it could actually be something. Uh, a twist to it could be that um, how a very how some an unconventional bet paid off big time. Mm. If that can help narrow things down for you. Yeah, I'll take the first one for now. I All think, right. I think. Um, you know, one of the beliefs, dude, that I have is like, it, it's, it's, I'm trying to unpack this, but I think for me, the, the biggest belief is just in myself. You know, it's like in myself, meaning that like when you really believe in yourself and when you really, when you really know that, you know, you, you've sort of got to a place where you're, where you're comfortable with who you are and you've accepted who, who you are and you've reflected on yourself a lot. And that takes a lot of time to really understand yourself the ins and outs dude and i do this even to this day i travel alone for three days and i I really need to i feel like i still have a lot in myself that i'm I'm learning still as i grow up i'm only 26 too like i'm a young guy you know and i think um doing more of this is teaching me that actually listening to myself and being comfortable with myself and it's okay that i'm not a doctor it's okay that i'm not an engineer i'm not made for that i'm george you know, and I have I have certain skills and capabilities that I was given that I need to explore and really push forward because this is what the world needs. You know, and if you just really trust yourself and if you believe in yourself and and more importantly, you take yourself seriously and you for once in your life, man, bet on yourself. Really fucking bet. Like really say, I'm going to go all in. I'm going to trust myself. I'm going to trust my gut and I'm just going to I'm going to do this for once in my life. I'm just going to I'm going to be serious about what I do. And I'm going to fucking own it. I'm going to put on a suit and like put on my armor and like whatever it is, my dress, my, you know, and, and really figure it out. I'm going to go and just, I'm going to look at this world differently from now on. You know, tomorrow I'm going to wake up and I'm going to crush the shit out of this world. And if I, if I have this view, then there won't be need for conventional thinking because everything that's going to come to you is going to be unconventional. You might switch a role in a year from now. You might leave a work you've been with for five months and people are going to think that's unconventional. But guess what? You're taking one step closer to being who you actually are meant to be. And in a world that's more conventional, I would be on the unconventional side every fucking day of my life until I die. So 
that's an awesome second advice as well. And so I'd say that's also an awesome advice for people to take as well. And it's it's kind of reminds me of a Warren Buffett quote where he says, "Take the high road because all the other roads are crowded." And exactly. Yeah, I think that's actually a great place to end off the, our wonderful conversation. But before I actually sign off, is there something that we didn't talk about today that you kind of wish that we maybe we may have touched on, or you just want to leave my audience with? I think there's a lot we can talk about. I think the best thing for people, if you're, if you're listening, is like a call to action. Just connect with me. You know, whether it's on Instagram, you can find me at Khalif Style, K-H-A-L-I-F-E-S-T-Y-L-E. Even if you just Google my name, like not, I mean, Instagram my name, sorry. Uh, LinkedIn, just my name. Uh, reach out, man. I'm always available. Really, I try to answer everybody. So if you have cool things you want to talk about, I'm sure there's a, a bunch of questions, maybe stuff you don't agree with, which I love even better. Uh, so reach out, say whatever you want. If you like this podcast, let us know. And I think that's it, man. If, if there's, I mean, you, you might even get some questions, then we can continue it offline, write a blog after. We'll see what happens. Yeah, man. Awesome. No, George, thanks so much for your time and sharing your story with me and my audience. Appreciate it. Thank you, brother. And uh, cheers to everyone. All right. Take care. All right. Thank you for listening to the podcast. I hope the story was inspiring to you. It, hopefully, it also helped you expand your perspectives. Hopefully, it also made you question the default path that you might have been going on or the default beliefs you might have had. And maybe now it'll make you even think about doing something about it, doing something different maybe, challenging yourself, being courageous. Who knows? But regardless, I'm really happy that you took some time out of your day to listen to this fantastic story with my guest. And if you would like to somehow, in some way, contribute and help support the podcast and maybe even just be part of the community that I'm trying to build with the greater OMD Ventures platform, really think about being a stakeholder in the platform. And the quick way to do that is to go to my website, oldmandan.com, and go to the stakeholders page. I believe it's oldmandan.com slash stakeholder. And the link is also down below. And that's how you can figure out how you can subscribe, follow to get more updates on the free content, but at the same time, also donate and donate by actually just buying me a coffee. That's just how I put it. And you can buy me a coffee a month, coffee a week, or coffee every day of the year. And think about it as the way that, you know, if you wanted to chat with me, you might just bring me out for coffee and buy me a coffee. Or if you wanted to bring one of my guests out to chat, you might buy them a coffee. So I'm just think of it as I'm the service that's doing that for you. So you can just pay me in coffees <laughs> don't worry uh everything will still be free it's just it would just really help if you would like to show your support this way so that i can use the coffee money to buy myself actual coffees and also to buy my guests actual coffees at and use the leftover money to actually grow the platform as well as even keep it operationally alive as well because it all this isn't really free and it does take a lot of time to build it as well as operate it and hopefully grow it further so your support would be amazing if you would like to contribute and so yeah just check out the website go to the stakeholders page and read the different kind of benefits you might even get as a stakeholder all right thank you <laughs>